from 90.3 RLCW VPH FM Piscataway. It's the Core News for the week of Monday, October 11th. This week on the Core News, we've got some international news, an environmental update. We'll tell you about new music, both here at the Core and out in the big wide world. And we'll tell you about the Garden State Equality Town Hall meeting that was held at the Rector's Student Center on Wednesday. But first, here's Amy Bronstein with the war updates. In Afghanistan, Linda Norgrove, a British aid worker kidnapped by the Taliban, was killed during a rescue raid. Details are still murky. NATO had initially said that Norgrove was killed during a blast detonated by the Taliban. However, on Monday, October 11th, British Prime Minister David Cameron said that U.S. Commander David Petraeus had told him Norgrove's death could have been the result of a grenade lobbed by U.S. forces in the rescue attempt. The BBC reports that Afghan officials insist the young aid worker would still be alive if U.S. forces had engaged Norgrove's captors in a dialogue as they had advised, instead of mounting a raid in the mountainous and isolated region where Norgrove had been held. On Sunday, October 10th, Pakistan reopened the Torkham border crossing, which is normally heavily used by NATO convoys delivering goods and supplies to frontline troops in Afghanistan. The 11-day border closing was prompted when NATO forces crossed from Afghanistan into Pakistan, allegedly in pursuit of Taliban fighters. The incursion resulted in the deaths of three Pakistani soldiers by a NATO airstrike, incensed by the incursion by their allies. The Pakistani government closed the border crossing. However, Taliban fighters in the area took advantage of the idled supply trucks, setting many of them alight. This prompted questions from NATO allies as to the connectedness of the Pakistani military and the Taliban insurgents they are fighting. And on October 7, 2010, the Afghan war entered its 10th year, longer than America's declared war in Vietnam. I'm Amy Bronstein with the Core News War Update. This is the Core News, and now it's time for an international news update. Here's Yashwanth Manjanat. According to the Associated Press, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian leader of the West Bank, has suspended the recent Palestinian-Israeli peace talks. On September 25th, Abbas told the press that if Israel did not continue its 10-month freeze on settlements, he would suspend peace talks with Israel. The settlements in question are civilian Jewish communities located in the Palestinian-occupied West Bank. These settlements have led to violence between the Palestinians and Israelis who are living together in the occupied land. The Israeli government refused to comply with Abbas's demands, so the two sides are at a standstill for the umpteenth time. Let's hope Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the rest of the Israeli government reverse course and stop building settlements in the interest of peace. The United Nations has finished investigating Israel's role in the deaths of nine passengers on board a Turkish flotilla back in late May. Before explaining the UN's findings, I will briefly summarize the incident for those who have forgotten the details. The flotilla was carrying humanitarian aid to the Gaza Strip. At the moment, the Israeli government is illegally blockading Gaza and preventing aid of any sort from getting through. When the flotilla tried to reach Gaza, the Israeli military raided the ship in international waters. After boarding the ship illegally, the Israeli military met violent but unarmed resistance from the passengers. In the ensuing melee, nine people were killed. The question, of course, is how those nine people were killed. Were they killed by panic shots fired into an angry mob, or were they murdered in cold blood? The Washington Post is reporting that after conducting an independent investigation, 
the UN has determined that six of those nine passengers were, quote, summarily executed. It came to that conclusion based on ballistic analysis of forensic evidence from the scene. One of those six was an American citizen by the name of Furkan Dogen. According to the forensic analysis cited by the UN, Furkan Dogen was shot five times in the head, including once in the back of the head from point-blank range. The UN report indicates that Dogen was taping the scene with a small video camera from the top deck of the ship before being shot from behind. According to the UN, after he was already shot and lying helpless in a semi-conscious state on the deck of the ship, the 19-year-old American was shot in the back of the head by an Israeli soldier. It will be interesting to see how our government handles the situation with Israel and whether there will be any consequences. Finally, Bloomberg News reports that the United States has lost the ability to produce smart bombs itself. Smart bomb manufacturers have been outsourcing jobs to China, and the Chinese have capitalized on the opportunity. China recently cornered the market on rare earth metals, which are an important material used in smart bomb production. This means China gets to dictate price and supply of any weapons that require rare earth metals for production, including smart bombs. China is using this advantage to reduce rare earth export quotas for the rest of the year by 72%. This means prices for some rare earth metals are now six times higher. If that wasn't bad enough, rare earth metals are also essential for the production of hybrid electric cars and wind turbines. Since all the people in the U.S. who know how to manufacture smart bombs lost their jobs and moved on to greener pastures, it would take 15 years to rebuild the infrastructure necessary to again produce smart bombs in the United States. It remains to be seen just how far-reaching and potentially disastrous the future consequences of this will be. With the international news, I'm Yashwant Manjanath. This is The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. This is Nana, 90.3 The Core Environmental News Update. So first we're going to go to Western Hungary in Eastern Europe. Consult your map. The Hungarian government has declared a state of emergency in three counties in the town of Atka, 100 miles southwest of Budapest, an aluminum plant's containment reservoir burst its banks and flooded several nearby towns with gigantic waves of caustic red sludge. In one of the towns affected, Kolontar, the caustic sludge reached a height of six and a half feet. At least three fatalities have been reported and at least seven people are reported missing. Of the more than 100 injuries reported the most common injury was burns to the skin and eyes. Police are investigating the cause of the reservoir breach. Now we are headed back here in New Jersey to our Delaware River Basin. Hydraulic fracking regulations are expected any day now and the news is that on the past on this past Wednesday the New York City Council decided to urge the Delaware River Basin Commission to not release any regulations leaving the fracking company high and dry by not allowing any drilling period. I like New York City, don't you? The Delaware is a river that breathes life, not an industrial growth corridor. So says Nana, agreeing with the environmental people and New York City. I will keep you posted on this story, the river. Also here in New Jersey, recycled items we use in our everyday life are becoming a work of art at Grounds for Sculpture in Hamilton, New Jersey. Artist-in-residence Eric Schultz, along with a few already chosen volunteers, are building an artwork entitled Sleeping Giant. This Sleeping Giant will take shape October 11th through the 15th and October 18th through the 22nd, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. In an interview with Ruth Ann Perry, a volunteer docent at Grounds for Sculpture, Eric Schultz said, 
I was looking to work on a macro scale, a recognizable figure or icon to describe the magnitude of the waste products we are churning out. Even the name Sleeping Giant describes what is out there. I think I might go out there and visit and watch the Sleeping Giant come to life and snooze. For more info, you can visit groundsforsculpture.com. And there you have it, the environmental news here on 90.3 The Core. And that was Nana with your environmental news as usual. You're listening to The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. Now it's time to find out what's happening in new music. Here's Alex Goldstein. Nick Cave has been in many bands throughout his career. From the boys next door in the late 70s to the birthday party in the early 80s, from his classic albums with the Bad Seeds to collaborations with artists as varied as Kylie Minogue and Shane McGowan from the Pogues, it's safe to say that Cave is no stranger to having change in his music. In 2007, Cave, usually a piano player, switched over to guitar, an instrument he described his skill at as primitive, to start the ultra-blues vamping group, Grinderman. The band is comprised of Cave and some members of the Bad Seeds, but definitely doesn't feel like a side project. In September, Cave and Company released Grinder Man 2. It's an album that goes from noise-shattered rock to soulful piano-based numbers with strange visionary lyrics. Despite the older ages of the members of this group, Grinder Man is certainly a new band and feels very fresh. With Music News, I'm Alex Goldstein. The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. The Core News will be back right after this. This is The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. The recent suicide of Rutgers University first-year student Tyler Clementi has left the university and New Jersey as a whole in a certain amount of turmoil and has also attracted a great deal of media attention. Recently... A town hall meeting was held in remembrance of Tyler Clementi at the Rutgers Student Center's multi-purpose room. It was held on Wednesday, October 7th. It was sponsored by New Jersey organization Garden State Equality and also by a number of the LGBT groups here at Rutgers. I'm Stephen Goldstein. I'm chair of Garden State Equality. It's the state's LGBT civil rights organization. And we wanted to come here to Rutgers to illustrate how widespread the problem of bullied, tormented, and intimidating youth are. Tyler Clementi represents many LGBT and straight youth who are bullied for being different. And it's up to us to do something about it, starting with passing legislation, starting with working 
with organizations to educate people. It's all of our collective responsibility to make sure a tragedy like this never happens again. Two organizations, Delta, Lambda Phi, and Big LaRue, and then other organizations chimed in, uh, Diego, the uh, Queer Coalition of Color, and the Queer Caucus, and uh, we accepted their invitation and we're thrilled. Rutgers University is an incredible university with wonderful students, and we feel very blessed to have this university in our state. The event included comments by several politicians and also several members of the community, Rutgers students, Rutgers alumni, who have experienced various forms of bullying and discrimination. One of the speakers was State Senator Raymond Lesniak, who is known for helping to end the death penalty in New Jersey and also for supporting legislation for marriage equality. It is not often we have an opportunity to change society and how we treat each other as human beings. It occurs a few times in our lifetime if it occurs at all. We have that opportunity today. We can change fear to love, hate to compassion, cruelty to kindness. Unfortunately, we chose not to give marriage equality to our fellow human beings who are gay. We chose poorly. During State Senator Lesniak's comments, one member of the audience applauded when he mentioned that New Jersey has currently not approved marriage equality. Several members of the crowd attempted to shout that person down, then the center continued with his statements. Also present was one of New Jersey's congressmen, Rush Holt. It is a matter of overcoming these divisions of them and us. It's a, it's a matter of speaking out uh, rather than turning, as Mary Pat says, rather than turning away silently. Um, it is a matter of taking the struggle onto the national stage. Just this week, a prominent senator said gays and lesbians should be forbidden from teaching in our schools. An assistant attorney general in Michigan used a blog to attack an openly gay student body president at his alma mater, calling him a radical homosexual activist. Well, I hope he is an activist. That's... um But it's hard, of course, because it's so personal. It's more than losing a promotion in the workplace or being discharged from the service or being intimidated at school. This takes courage, takes the kind of courage we celebrated at, you know, on, on September 11th, nearly a decade ago. Very few of us will have the opportunity to face up to vicious hijackers But every one of us has the opportunity to stand up to bigotry in the community. 
I've been moved, I've been moved, as I'm sure many of you have been, by the words of Tyler's parents. Words such as compassion and empathy and human dignity. It's hard in the face of tragedy. But as we talk about the legislation, let's remember the words of Martin Luther King Jr. You know, when we were in an earlier chapter of the civil rights debate, you know, it, it was not just the anti-lynching laws. It was not just the desegregation of the military decades later. Or a decade after that, the civil rights legislation of the late 50s or the 1964 Public Accommodations Act, or the 1965 uh, Voting Rights Act, or Fair Housing Act. Every time these came up, they said, people said to the legislature, legislators, but you can't change people's hearts. Well, Martin Luther King got it right. It may be true that law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. There are things that we can do legislatively to extend this American dream, to show that the answer to Abraham Lincoln's question, can we endure dedicated to this proposition? As part of the progress, we have to provide civil protection in this brave new world of the internet and the electronic media. We can restrain the heartless as we individually take the actions to embrace the diversity and build the beloved community. Thanks. This is The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. We're listening to excerpts from a town hall meeting. Wednesday, October 7th, held at the Rector Student Center. It was held by Garden State Equality, a state LGBT organization. And when we come back, we're going to hear some excerpts from New Jersey's U.S. Senators, who were also in attendance at the event. If you're driving during this very exciting rainstorm that we're suddenly having, please remember to be careful and keep plenty of stopping distance between you and the vehicles ahead of you. The Core News will be back right after this. You're listening to The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. This week, we're talking about a town hall meeting held at Rutgers last Wednesday by Garden State Equality and co-sponsored by several Rutgers groups, including Big LaRue and Diego. At this event, a number of congressmen, senators, and prominent members of the community, including Rutgers alumni and Rutgers students, spoke out and discussed their feelings and incidents that they've endured similar to those made famous by Tyler Clemente's recent suicide. One of the attendees was New Jersey Senator Frank Lautenberg. He is going to introduce in November into the U.S. Senate the Protecting College Students from Harassment Act. Among other things, this act will require colleges and universities that receive federal student aid to adopt a code of conduct which prohibits harassment and bullying and have a policy in place to deal with complaints and incidents of harassment and bullying. It will also attempt to ensure that cyberbullying is recognized as a form of harassment at institutes of higher education 
and also create a competitive grant program at the, Depar- at the Department of Education to help colleges and universities establish programs and initiatives to prevent bullying and harassment of students, including those who are harassed because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Lautenberg also presented a number of statistics on harassment and bullying, including, according to a study released in 2004 by Rowan University, that 27.5% of college students indicated they had seen students being bullied by other students. That study also stated that LGBT students are particularly susceptible to bullying and abuse. According to a separate study by Campus Pride, LGBT students are twice as likely to experience harassment than their heterosexual counterparts and seven times more likely to indicate that the harassment was based on their sexual identity. If you have an opinion on this act that Senator Lautenberg is planning to introduce, then you can contact his office. He stated that he would be happy to hear anything any citizen of the state wanted to say about this issue. Another speaker was Senator Robert Menendez. He's the junior senator from New Jersey. We'll hear an extended excerpt of Menendez's remarks that day. So vigilance remains necessary. The act against one member of the gay community is a crime against all people who have been called out for being different in one way or another. The hatefulness of this act... (laughs) The hatefulness of this act against one young man is not somehow rendered less cruel or obviously less consequential because it happened online. We can never tolerate such a crime against a member of the community regardless of who they are. We can't tolerate it in the real world and we cannot tolerate it in the virtual world either. That's why we should also talk about and educate the power of the internet and the new social media. It has improved our lives in so many ways, and yet it has a deeply dark underside as well. What happened to Tyler Clementi forces us to face our moral fallibility. We need to ask ourselves, how do we emphasize a moral imperative in a way in which all of us, but particularly our young adults and teens in the global village, where everyone is connected, but identities are blared by a false sense of anonymity. How do we in the hyper-democracy of the digital age bring forward to the virtual world the same basic rules of decency we have always sought to exercise in the real world? And those are questions we're going to have to answer in the days ahead, both as a people and as policymakers. Like millions of college students, those who pushed Tyler to the brink were on the cutting edge of technology, using Facebook and Twitter and video chat to socialize and stay in touch with friends and family. But the same internet that makes the entire world accessible to us also has the potential to make us accessible to the entire world. The same internet that can broadcast a baby's first steps to its proud grandparents can also broadcast a shy freshman's most private moments to millions of computer screens in all corners of the planet. No matter how tech-savvy our young students are, shouldn't they comprehend the gravity of their actions at the time? Shouldn't they grasp that once you put something online, it's there for everyone, 
it's there permanently and you lose all control over it. Shouldn't they understand how quickly it would spread or what a devastating impact it could have on the individual? The fact is, Tyler Clemente's tragic death represents the destructive mix of technology and intolerance and how vulnerable and exposed we all are in the virtual world. Now I know that there will be calls for legislation, and there should be, to deal with the tragedy. Uh, we've heard some, and I think they're worthy, others that have been filed, some that we're looking at. My own Safe uh, Internet Act, which I introduced over a year ago, when I learned from young people the consequences of bullying online and read nationally of those who took their lives as a result of that bullying. Uh, the whole question of sexting, the whole question uh, of gay bashing uh, across the virtual world, and on and on. And I think those are all important. But 20 years ago, when I was in the New Jersey legislature and passed the New Jersey Bias Crime Law, uh, I said then uh, that while we cannot ultimately take out the bigotry that a person has in their mind or in their heart, we can send a clear societal message that we will not tolerate that type of bigotry. And that's why uh, I included in the law that any crime in New Jersey that is committed against an individual because of their race, their religion, their ethnicity, or their sexual orientation will face a higher penalty. It sends a strong societal message that we will not accept that reality. And so, that was 20 years ago. We've come a long way, but yet we still have so far to go. And so we'll look at the Matthew Shepard Law and see whether or not uh, that needs to be strengthened, something I was proud to be a co-sponsor and support. We'll look at whether or not uh, we have the opportunities through the federal sources, through the Department of Education at a federal level that funds a series of public school efforts to try to ensure that both on the education side as well as the enforcement side that we have some real opportunities to change the course of events for many of the young people we heard here today. Uh, but laws are only as good as they are enforced. And we need a Department of Justice that will clearly enforce the law vigorously through its Civil Rights Division, and I will continue to press that as a member of the United States Senate. So let me simply say, we can have all the laws in the world, and I think we should. But ultimately, what we need to encourage, what we need to engage in this dialogue is decent moral citizenship, one based on tolerance, the understanding and acceptance that whether you wear a bindi or a turban as a Sikh or a headdress as a Muslim or a cross as a Christian or a star of David as a Jew or have a different skin color or worship at a different altar or speak with an accent or are state, uh, straight or gay that while that may be different than who that individual may be who is looking at them, it is not a challenge to me, it is not a threat to me, it is in fact a celebration of the greatest successful human experiment in the history of mankind. It's called the United States of America. And 
We must commit moving forward in our lives, whether in the real or virtual world, to a tolerance of others that is more than lip service. And I doubt there isn't a person in this room that in some degree hasn't violated that fundamental view. When we laugh at the ethnic joke, and I have heard many of them during my lifetime, when we disparage the way someone looks, when we ridicule those who have a lifestyle different than ours, we not only act intolerant, we empower those who would act out on their intolerance. We put the bullet in the chamber. We have the power, individually and through peer pressure, to ensure that Tyler Clementi's death was not in vain. Let us fully appreciate and celebrate our diversity and come together for some real soul searching, for we are, after all, one community. We will be a better one with the realization that we are enriched by our differences and grander for all of our collective gifts. Let us make a personal commitment beyond being here tonight. Let us make a personal commitment in how we live our lives, how we act towards others, how we turn back the voices of intolerance, however that intolerance is expressed, to ensure that Tyler's death was not in vain. Thank you very much for having me. That was New Jersey's junior U.S. Senator Robert Menendez speaking at last week's Garden State Equality Town Hall meeting at the Rutgers Student Center. The event was held in remembrance of university freshman Tyler Clementi, who committed suicide a few weeks ago. If you'd like to hear the entire event, tomorrow, Tuesday the 12th, 90.3 The Core will be preempting Democracy Now!, which usually airs at 6 p.m., at which time you can hear the Garden State Equality Town Hall meeting in its entirety. It will be airing from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. tomorrow, Tuesday, October 12th. You're listening to The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. Cold gray morning, waking in his room, she goes crawling out the window, climbing up the crooked stairs. Of Here to tell us about new music on 90.3 The Core this week, it's The Core's head music director, Lauren Jefferson. This week we got a lot of great music at the station this week. Um, one band I want to mention, The Hundred in the Hands, released their self-titled debut album. The duo is comprised of Eleanor Everdell and Jason Friedman, who decided to start a band after uh, they discovered their mutual love for hip-hop and French house music and disco. Each of these genres actually appears in one way or another throughout the tracks of their self-titled debut. What I personally like about these guys is... They have like an overall air of sophistication, but their music still reflects like signs of heartache and boredom, which is, it's kind of, it kind of comes off in like a really cool way, but it's definitely a unique sound and style that they have. I think anybody who was into like Fanagram or Orbois Simone, Yeah Yeah Yeahs, or maybe even like Leaky Lee might find a track or two from the hundred in the hands that that they just can't stop listening to. Unfortunately, they just came through the New York area and did a few shows with Temper Trap just last week. But if you happen to be out in California, you can catch The Hundred in the Hands live and all their tour dates are listed on their MySpace page, which is just myspace.com slash The Hundred in the Hands. Also, Mark Ronson released his third album under Mark Ronson and the Business International. The 
album's titled Record Collection. If you haven't heard of Mark Ronson, he's a Grammy Award-winning producer uh, who kind of, I guess, popped up more so in America after producing Amy Winehouse's album Back to Black. But he's been doing some some solo releases with collaborations from a few artists, and uh, this is his third release. And he definitely still maintains his like retro and chic style. It's, it's unique to his his work. For this album, he's partnered with a lot of artists, including Q-Tip, Alex Greenwald of Phantom Planet, Ghost Faced Killer, Mike Snow, and even Boy George. So there's really not much I can say about the album. It's kind of one of those things you just have to you have to listen to for yourself. But it's definitely it's definitely worth a listen. So what have DJs at the Corp been into this week? So there wasn't really anything surprising with this week's top three. Weezer came in at number one this week with their release Hurley. Number two went to Screaming Females with Castle Talk. And coming in at number three was No Age with their album Everything In Between. Something that kind of jumped up the charts a little bit. Sisters, with their release Ghost Fits, went from number 36 last week to number eight this week. So a lot of people found that album. And these guys, it's actually two guys, are noted simply for their their blend of garage rock, lo-fi, and fuzz. But they have a really simple song structure which actually makes it kind of catchy so I'd recommend these guys for, for anyone who's a fan of Japan Droids or the Smith Westerns um, to check out Sisters and their album Ghost Fits That's the Course Head Music Director Lauren Jefferson You're listening to 90.3 The Core That's all for this week's edition of The Core News. We will be back next Monday at 7 p.m. Right here on 90.3 The Core. Or that's the rumor anyway. If you'd like to contact The Core News, suggest a new story, join The Core News team yourself, or maybe tell us about a uh, cool news event that's coming up that you think we should cover, well, then you can email us by sending email to news at thecore.fm. The Core News has been brought to you by Amy Bronstein Yashwanth Manjanat Nana Lauren Jefferson Alex Goldstein Rebecca Berkowitz Stephen Yannick and Mindy Hoffman You've been listening to The Core News on 90.3 The Core